Episode number 22 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research and has an interesting story, or 20, from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Liu, and I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. Our guest today is author, video game developer, documentarian, and the self-professed Silicon Valley therapist, Howard Scott Warshaw. His recent book, with a slightly exaggerated title, is called Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. And it tells uh, Howard's story of his time developing a handful of particularly famous games at Atari in the early 1980s. Howard, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. Thank you, Frank. It's really good to be here. So... Howard, uh, why did you decide to write an autobiography about your time at Atari? Well, I can't say it was so much a a decision as uh, a response to an overwhelming demand on the part of many people who know me who just for years have been saying, well, where's the Atari book, Howard? Where's the Atari book? I've been writing for years. I've written columns in game magazines. I've written books on other topics. And everyone always wants to know, because I write, I tend to write books on fairly obscure topics or niche kind of things. And everybody says, well, why don't you just write the Atari book? When are you going to, because I tell stories. I tell a lot of Atari stories to my friends when they ask, they go, oh, these are great stories. You should write this. You should write this book. I always knew it was going to be a big thing, though, to write a memoir, right? A memoir is to put myself out there like that. It's uh, it's not always an easy thing to do if, because I think if you're really going to do it, you have to really put yourself out there, tell the truth and really lay it all out. And that can be a uh, uncomfortable thing. But uh, around 2015, I started taking notes and organizing it in my head. I spent two years organizing material and then I spent actually two years writing it. If I would have known it was a four-year project, I'm not sure I would have started it. But, <laughs> uh, I did. And it finally, and I'm very pleased with how it came out. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned kind of putting yourself out there. I mean, you express even early on in the book, something that, uh, you know, I think a lot of people could relate to is that, that uh, your ability to find humor in everyday life, uh, you know, may have possibly caused people to sort of misunderstand you over the years. Uh, it's very true. Not everyone understands a sense of humor in the full context. And uh, uh, there were enough uh, difficulties that I dealt with uh, growing up that a sense of humor was essential. And I've always held that very close, uh, sometimes to the point of annoyance of others, but usually for their entertainment. And, uh, but I also, because I like to think deeply about things, I like to deal with things in a very serious way. And if I don't balance that with some lightness and humor at times, uh, it's not a good formula, as I try to help a lot of my clients understand. So you've been telling some of these stories for... Gosh, probably 20 years. Is that fair to say from the first uh, uh, sort of proto video game, retro video game conventions? Oh, 20 years would be kind. I've been practically telling the stories for 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean to say that, you know, there's been a a fairly public, you know, yes, I have about 20 years I've been airing my old laundry. (laughs) 
And and I mean, um, you know, since you're talking about going twenty back twenty years, you know, you've you've also previously uh, published work that sort of went into um, what some, I'm sure yourself included, might call the sort of golden years of Atari. In fact, uh, your documentary uh, shares a title with your book, Once Upon Atari. Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, there was Atari was an extraordinary experience. I mean, it was an unbelievable experience, although I hope people will believe it because I actually am telling the truth in the book. But as some of it really strains credulity because it was remarkable stuff. And it impacted me intensely. And after a while, after a number of years, I decided I needed to do something to resolve Atari in my life, in my head. And I thought, I love TV. I love movies. I always wanted to be involved with that. And I saw there was a curriculum for uh, TV production at a local college. And so I enrolled in that program and just ate it up and just buzzed through that program. And with the intention of preparing myself to do a documentary series, and because I saw so much media about Atari, you know, for the years right after Atari, there was a lot of media focus on Atari, a lot of attention. And I was so disappointed because most of what I read about Atari was, was really bogus. It was just, it wasn't true. It wasn't accurate. And, uh, one thing that always appeals to me as a documentarian is when I understand a truth that is widely misheld and the truth is either more sympathetic or more interesting than the fiction that's out it, about it, uh, that's irresistible to me. I need to go and correct the misperception. And uh, Atari was one thing that was so amazing and people were so missing the point with it. I thought, I know what the story is. I also have access to all the people who were actually there. So I did. I went and rounded up all the people, most of my friends who worked there and some uh, some of the managers and Nolan Bushnell. And I interviewed them all and I put together a piece that was all about what it was like to work at Atari. And that's the DVD series, Once Upon Atari. But an interesting thing happened during the uh, dig in Alamogordo, which I imagine we'll get to at some point. (laughs) But what happened was the director of the movie Atari Game Over, Zach Penn, had watched uh, my Once Upon Atari documentary several times as preparation for the movie he was doing. And I talked to him one point and he made an interesting observation to me. He said, you know, he goes, you know, the one thing that's missing from Once Upon Atari is you. He says, you're not really in it. I mean, I'm the host of Once Upon Atari, but I really didn't tell stories about me. I collected everybody else's stories, including some of their stories about me, but I didn't really tell my story in Once Upon Atari. And and he and he had interviewed me and done a lot of work with this. He says, you know, it's really a shame that you left that out of, of this thing because you're a major part of the story. Why would you leave that out? And I had to, I had to realize, acknowledge that that's true. You know, it's... I, was, I felt very self-conscious when I was doing the movie Once Upon Atari, so I didn't want to put myself in it too much. And I ended up overcorrecting, apparently. And when he said that, I realized, and that was in 2014, and that was one of the things that really finally put the nail in the I'm not writing the Atari book yet coffin. <laughs> There's I mean, still so much more left to say because you, <laughs> didn't, you didn't get it out with the, uh, with the documentary, your own words. It's very true. And once I get, as you're realizing, you know, once I get started talking, it's hard to stop. (laughs) 
I mean, I don't know why you think you're such an important part of the Atari story, considering you only did, what, three like million selling games for them? <laughs> That's <So>. all. <laughs> but, it, but it was just my three games. Um, so tell us about um, how it is that you started at Atari. Well, how I started at Atari is kind of an interesting story. As I go into in the book, it's the idea that a lot of it. It's really funny in retrospect. It wasn't nearly as funny at the time, but after I first got a hold of Atari, because I was desperate to get out of Hewlett Packard, which is where I was, I was really bored and unhappy and had lost the thrill and passion of computing that I had found originally, which propelled me into computers. And and then I heard about Atari, which everybody wants to go to Atari to make games. I didn't want to go to Atari to make games. I wanted to go to Atari because I heard it was a wild place to work. And I heard they did real-time control processor programming, which is what I really like to do. And I love games. Games. I wasn't against making games, but I went to Atari for the kinds of programming and for the environment, interviewed. Everything seemed to be going smoothly. It was great. It just seemed like a natural match. And then they rejected me. They actually turned me down. So it was. they said I really probably wouldn't fit in, that I wasn't really the kind of person who should work at Atari. And I just literally, hands and knees, begged them and wore them down (laughs) to give me an opportunity. I took a major cut in pay and a probationary period just to get the opportunity because I knew in my bones this was the place I had to be. And they gave me the chance and obviously it worked out. (laughs) It was was a really funny thing when you think about the fact that I was rejected from Atari because they thought I wouldn't fit in. (laughs) And you talked a little bit about this in your book, but... um that it might have been the the wearing down of getting, you know, kind of talking yourself into Atari might have been that your hiring manager was leaving. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> and and is your was... entire career hinged on this guy knowing he was going to be gone? And just being like, yeah, whatever, come on, I don't care. <laughs> exactly. It was like, I was lucky that he didn't care enough to let me go because like, what the hell? <laughs> it was... <laughs> Because it's like, you know, about five months after I started, he left with two other of my my closest friends of the programmers. And like, I was really, I felt really bad about that because I was losing people I really cared for. But in retrospect, you know, I think, ah, thank God he was leaving if that's what made the difference. (laughs) So your first day, you make a pretty, I think it was your first day, or at least it was early on, you make a pretty pivotal decision uh, when given the option between um, doing a game for uh, the 2600, the VCS as it was at the time, uh, or for the home computers. Um, you went for the the uh, the VCS because it was the crappier of the machines and you wanted a challenge. Um, and then your first assignment was to convert uh, Star Castles, the arcade game, to the VCS. And your immediate uh, reaction is to try to change it into another game. I mean... Is there is there a rebellious streak to you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a Yiddish expression called chutzpah, you know, and there's the, the colloquial definition of chutzpah is uh, when someone kills their parents and then begs for mercy on the grounds that they're an orphan. <laughs> and it's It was sort of like that. It was. They put me on probation. And you figure, okay, so you're just going to do whatever they ask to try and make things okay. But 
what they, I don't know what they realized that I didn't just see Atari as an opportunity to go to a fun place to work and uh, to do the kind of programming I like. Uh, to me, it was an opportunity to get into entertainment, which is something I always wanted to do. And if I'm going to do something to entertain, I want to, I want to make sure it's going to work. I want it to be fabulous. I want it to be fantastic. And I looked over Star Castle. I read the manual. I kind of got the hang of what was going on with the machine. And I realized that if I just did the assignment the way they made it, it was going to suck. And I was there was no way I was going to participate in something that was going to suck. I just wasn't going to do it. And so I went. I didn't just say, nah, I don't want to do this. But I mean, I, I made a presentation. You know, I went to the guy who also was the guy who was still going to be leaving in a little while. And I said, hey, look, that assignment doesn't really work for me. But here's something I think would work. And I think it's an interesting way to rework stuff on the machine. And this is another one of those things where he might have been like, no, do the assignment. I told you what to do. But he might have also thought on second thought, you know, hmm. Who cares? Whatever. Just do whatever you want. Just get out of my office. <laughs> I'm out of here soon. <laughs> and uh, but he or you made they, a really compelling argument. <laughs> you know, I, I don't consider that side of it, which I should more. I should give myself a little more credit. <laughs> and uh, but and it's true that it went that way. And the truth is, as I started to and this was the game that was going to be Yars Revenge, but it was not Yars Revenge at that point. Because the naming of Yara's Revenge, which is a whole nother story, uh, didn't happen until very late in the project. At this point, all I wanted to do was do something that was super flashy on the screen with really interesting eye-popping animations and some really great sound. And I got to that point where I had most of those mechanics operating and the game sucked. I mean, the game was like no good. It was just no fun to play. And I had a horrible controller scheme, which was one of the things I had kept from Star Castle. And it just didn't work in that yeah. on that game. And so talk about depressed. I said, no, I'm not going to do that game. I'm going to do this game because that other game is going to suck. And now I'm looking at this game and it's like, well, okay, this is basically what I wanted to do. And it sucks. It was an interesting <laughs> place to be for a little while. <laughs> Well, help me visualize. So, I mean, I'm familiar with Yars Revenge. Um, and you probably don't have all the features in yet, but you've probably got like a monster on the right that you're you're kind of going after. Are you Absolutely. are you flying in a sort of asteroids way? Is that is that what you had at first? Yes, it was. It was the right left rotate uh push forward to uh thrust. It had to have actual physics, some physics logic. Uh, which was a nuisance, <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 the and the pull back on the controller I had saved to activate the Zorlon cannon. So I figured I can't let go of that because you have to be able to activate the Zorlon cannon to play Yars Revenge. We can't win without it. Yeah. And so, but it was so. Imagine playing Yars Revenge where you can't move the way you'd like to. You know, it really takes yeah. something out of the game. <laughs> and so, and it was suggested to me, why don't you just make it an X Y you know, trace game. You just move, go where you move the stick and, and go. And I say, well, that's great, but now I can't activate the one element I need to win the game. That's a real detriment. And so I don't know what to do about that. And then I realized though, that it was more important to be able to play. So I thought, okay, so there's got to be another way to get the Zorlon cannon. And that's when I hit on the idea of, you know, there's the bricks in the shield. Those would be like energy bricks and you eat those. And that way you eat the bricks or you touch the monster to activate 
the weapon. And, and that was a great game mechanic, right? Because that meant that anytime you want to yeah. activate the opportunity to attack the monster, you have to risk. You have to increase your risk level by getting closer to the monster or the Kotile, as it's known in the game. I do want to stick on yours for a minute. That changed I think, everything. I, I think it's interesting to um, sort of talk about your your priorities on this game, right? So, like, you want to make an entertainment splash, right? So does that mm-hmm. mean that when you're first sort of working on this game, do you do you kind of start with, like, you know, figuring out that giant explosion effect that's really... Uh, uh, famous in, in Yars Revenge or, you know, do, do you kind of start with those Hollywood moments and then. Yeah. There? I mean, I, some, a lot of people came to game making from engineering or from programming. And I certainly had that background, but I really came to game making from movies. Okay. Because, and it's true. It was exactly a movie maker's mindset that I came in with. And the explosion wasn't one of the first things I did, but it was the first thing I planned. When I was planning the game, the first thing I planned was this really elaborate, I mean, much more than what's in the game, right? I had a loose concept. A, an elaborate game? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I had a hugely elaborate payoff <laughs> sequence for when you, when you really kill the monster and everything goes. And that was the most important thing to me. I didn't implement it till later, but that was planned right up front. In fact, the name of the original working title in my head was Time Freeze. Because the sequence was whenever you'd kill the monster, you would have the the impact of the weapon, and then suddenly everything would freeze, and you start hearing like click, click, click. And as you'd hear that, you'd see something freezing across the screen in segments. And then you would start this huge explosion that was a full screen thing and make it go all over the place. It was much more elaborate than what I had. But you know, <laughs> time and programming restrictions sometimes adjust our concept. And you have a you have a theater background, right? So I mean, this is very much. I like do. A, I have a, a minor in the theater. Drama is there. Yeah, I've never been short of drama. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, as you're sort of making this first game, you're you're um, adjusting to life at Atari, right? Which is, um, I think, a big part of what it is that. Um, you want to capture it for, so that people understand, right? It's just sort of what that in creative environment was and, and why it worked. And um, actually I pulled a quote from your book that I think uh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to read verbatim. Um, you wrote, I've worked in creative environments where people think conflict is necessary for inspiration. I disagree. I believe conflict and competition are distractions. I believe organized chaos with low conflict high camaraderie and enough courage to keep you pushing limits and busting through barriers. That's the most important recipe. Sorry, potent recipe. Well, I agree with that statement completely. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be very clear about that. (laughs) Do you stand by your statement? But, um, but I mean like that, like that, that's essentially what you found at Atari, right? Like you sort of came in and found yourself, I would imagine maybe for the first time in your life among people that you would consider peers creatively. Uh, Yes. Uh, It's a very astute observation. That was a very significant moment in my life because I wasn't just discovering the kind of uh, professional environment that really worked for me, which I had never found before. 
Uh, I was also finding the kinds of challenge and the kinds of inspiration that work for me. Uh, because I always wanted to create. I always wanted to make something new. I, and I always wanted to move in the direction of entertaining people. And this was my chance to bring it all together. And I was very curious uh, all the time about, well, it, does this environment do that? And if so, how? Why? Because I'm also a hopelessly analytical individual. So it's not enough to have just experience something. I have to know exactly what happened and how it worked and how it went and what went on until I've completely picked it apart and destroyed the experience entirely. And then I can relax and enjoy the experience. That's that programmer <laughs> so, brain. It is programmer <laughs> brain. You're trying to turn body. the chaos into a computer. <laughs> it's true. But, you know, and chaos is very important because I always... I guess in my head, I think of that as organized chaos. Because if you ever looked at my desk, that's total chaos. But if you look at my output, that's usually pretty organized. And so I need both. You know, I, my thing is like, you know, when they talk about right-brained or left-brained, I'm very in the middle. And not just in the middle, like kind of eh, it doesn't matter which way we go. I'm sort of like in the middle, like I need both you know, for everything to be okay. So if I get too analytical, I start to need to be more creative. And when I start getting just in like a lost creative space and stuff like that, after a while, I need more grounding. That's why engineering is really good for me. Because engineering is something where, you know, you, you conceptualize something and then you see it through to completion, as opposed to a pure designer, which is all conceptual, or a pure craftsman, which is all implementation. I need both, which is why I left engineering, you know, which is another weird you know, contradiction about me. But yeah, what constitutes creativity? What fosters creativity? What provide, you know, I don't think you can plan creativity, but I think you can nurture it. And it's sort of like herding cats, you know, with the idea of, you know, you know what direction generally you want to go, but it's hard to predict how and when you're going to get there. So all you can do is make the best opportunities. And I've, I've been in a lot of creative environments. So I've seen ones that work better and ones that I felt didn't work quite as well. And that those were the common denominators that I came across. And I think from that same segment, you you do a lot of defining people in two groups in this book, but this this was a <laughs> this was one that I uh, that I thought was really interesting. Was you said that most people are stimulators or inspiration lightning rods. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I thought that was a, a really interesting way of the different kinds of creative minds categorizing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So what it is, is like, uh, I think of inspiration lightning rods. Those are the people who are going to say, hey, wait, let's do this. And it's a great idea. You know, <laughs> And you go like, yeah, that's what you want to do. And in, in brainstorms, I've been in a lot of brainstorms. And what you find is usually there are some people who actually come up with the good ideas, with the workable ideas, the thing that's actually going to be, yeah, let's do that. But they're not always the people who, you know, if you ask, so where did that come from? Well, I heard so-and-so did this and I saw over there, they, they were doing this and then she did this over here. And like, and then I realized, oh yeah, let's, you know, so you have stimulators or the people who are bouncing off the walls. You know, and doing all their wacky stuff and they don't necessarily even recognize what they're doing 
but they're generating, they're keeping things from being monotonous and they're keeping things from getting into ruts and they're creating new ways of, of seeing things, hearing things, thinking of things, uh, or even being safe about things in some cases. And then there's people who look at that and those, those are the stimulators, the ones who are running around doing wacky stuff. And then you have the lightning rods, the ones who see some of this going on and go, oh, yeah, that's what I haven't been doing. We need to go do this. We want to move over here. Let's let's take this direction. And then you have some people who are neither. Right. But those people, if they're solid technical people, are the ones who, when the lightning rods come up with the concept, say, "Okay, here's a game. We should do this. Let's put this in the game or let's do a game like this. They're the ones who will go ahead and say, oh, I'd like to program that. and they'll implement it. So you have, so there's, there's different roles that people play in the environment. Like now, uh, when you look at game development, particularly console development, right? You have large stabs of people who uh, are specialized. You have design, you have audio, you have programming, you have art, you have all these different disciplines and they're all doing their thing. So at Atari, one of the great things about it was it was a work of authorship. One person did everything on the game. But it wasn't that there was no groupings. But instead of being groupings for one game in different departments, we had groupings of people played different roles in terms of creating an environment that would foster good game development and good games would come out of that process. And so instead of having an art department and a programming department and a design department, you had a stimulator department, you had a lightning rod department, and you had a worker bee grouping, <laughs> right? And and it and that worked for that environment. If that answers your question. Um I believe it does, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um so was there then some some outside stimulation within Atari's walls that maybe contributed to Yar's Revenge other than maybe people telling you your control sucked? Uh, for Yar's Revenge, the difference from going from a bad game to a good game was largely people telling me it sucked and one person going, you know, you just need to be able to move it around. And, yeah. but, and the major thing that made the difference there, which is something I think every creative person faces at some time, is when am I holding on to something because it really has value in the process? And when am I holding on to something because I'm afraid of change or I don't know what else to do and I'm kind of hitting my limit in inspiration, right? Because if I'm really holding on to something because it's it's fundamental to my concept and that's where the goodness of whatever I'm doing lies, then I need to hang on to that and preserve that throughout the entire process. But There's a lot of times where fear masks itself as necessity. And I think I was in that place. And it was, and one of the great learning experiences for me on Yars Revenge was being able to confront myself and say, you know, Howard, give it a rest, let go. You're hanging on too tight and release it. Because the things that I really wanted to do, the glitz and and the big display and stuff, it was, that was there and that was solid. And I liked that. And what was happening was people were drawn to the game because it looked really cool and it looked very different. And then they'd start to deal with it and and it wasn't fun and it it wasn't working for them. But I could see I was drawing people, but I was drawing them, you know, into a (laughs) mousetrap. It was like, 
I need to make it a more welcoming experience. So I had to finally release that so people didn't get punished for being drawn to, you know, the nest. And uh, so that's a big piece of, of, of the puzzle. And so, you know, were there stimulants that went on? Absolutely, there were stimulants. One of the things I really go into in the book is just what stimulators look like and what they do. And, you know, things like the sprinkler lobotomy with Todd Fry and uh, some of the antics that went on at brainstorms, not during the brainstorm time, but in the partying afterwards, because a lot of creative action you know, when, when you're really, when you're a creative producer, when you're really someone who's involved in the creative process, there's no such thing as work hours, right? There may be hours you spend at the office, but if you're really a creative person, you know that your that project is on your mind and in your head for the entire duration of the project. So whatever you're doing, wherever you are, whatever room you're in in the house, it's you're churning. It's rolling. In some ways, the office is is a problem because when you're in the office, you know you're supposed to be thinking in a certain way. You're supposed to be working on the game, which turns off your brain's background processing. And when we get out of the office, that sort of releases it. And when we get out of the office and then we get into off hours and then we go to a bar, (laughs) we're kind of taking it easy. Uh, background processing is the only kind of processing we got at that point, but some really good stuff happens then. There is inspiration that occurs um, because I do believe that a lot of creative thought is when unrelated pieces get put together. And when we're thinking functionally and in process way, we're usually only looking at functional related pieces and putting those together. It's We have to take a break to get to the point where uh, random things happen to glom together in our minds. And though that's where inspiration occurs, in my opinion. And so at Atari, creating times like that, and then not only creating time away from the job, but then creating time away from the job where people are doing stuff you've never seen anybody do before, and nobody would for any real reason, any rational you know, basis. And but it worked, you know, it, it got us out of any kind of mental rut we might have been in. And a lot, and I think a lot of good creative stuff came out of it. You know, Yars Revenge was uh, uh, set a lot of standards. There were a lot of things that happened from Yars Revenge that went on to become standards that had never been seen before. And honestly, that was my goal. I wanted to do stuff nobody had seen before. I wanted to think in fresh ways to approach this. And uh, but I didn't know what that looked like when I got there. I only knew I wanted to do something different. I didn't know what it was yet. But and it was it was a process. It was a consistent uh, grinding of working away on the code and stepping away from it and doing some weird and wacky stuff with some interesting people. That's what working at Atari was. And it was just lovely, just an amazing experience that totally warped my head for any other kind of work for decades. Yeah, and, and something I was I was actually talking to Frank about yesterday when we were talking about how this episode was going to go was, you know, over the years, you know, as you are around people talking about video game history and talking about Atari and that sort of thing, I mean, you hear the same phrases all the time. You hear that it was a crazy place to work. You hear that there were drugs and, you know, there was a hot tub in there and it was crazy and fun. But you 
have all of these really specific illustrations that to me, for the first time, I was like, oh, I'm seeing this place. Like I can actually picture this environment as opposed to this nebulous wild party company that has been sort of the um, the way it's been phrased over the years. So I really appreciate that because I think that it's difficult to illustrate all of those things that you're saying about creative environments without actually giving those concrete examples and showing like, this is what that practically looks like. This is right. People don't <laughs> get, people don't get to see inside. I think, Ernest Klein wrote a foreword for the book, which I'm really grateful for. He's a really cool dude. And what he said about it that really stuck with me was that he's because he talked about like when he was growing up and he was playing the games, he goes, you know, there's there's certain experiences or certain things like Disney Studios is an example of it, where you grow up seeing their product and you wonder what it's like where where this is happening. What's it like going on inside? And the way he described this book was it was like, he said it's a, it's a it's a private tour of the chocolate factory given by Willy Wonka himself. And I think that's kind of what you're saying, right? Is that it gave you a chance to really see, really visualize what was going on inside. And if that worked for you, if that's what you got, then I feel really good as a writer. That's the nicest thing you can say to a writer is you painted a very clear picture in my head and I enjoyed it. So I'm going to presume the enjoyed part. Because I can't bear it if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> All um, of these lovely stories, and I hated it. <laughs> uh, I am going to make you tell a specific story because the 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 quote at the end that is the payoff is solid gold. Um, will you tell us a story about Todd Fry and the hotel balcony, please? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll give you an abbreviated version of that because it's, but there is some amazing stuff that went on there. So this was one of the brainstorms I was talking about it. And we'd go to a brainstorm, we'd go offsite and like a lot of people from the company would go. We'd go to a major hotel and it was by the beach and it was a beautiful place. And during the day, we'd have these ridiculous meetings where everybody's sitting in this huge circle of desks where you have creative people and you have people from every part of the company and senior management. And they're all sitting there discussing, well, we should have good games, you know, and new ideas for things. But, you know, you're not really going to produce many big ideas in a big circle like that with that cast. It's just, that's not super conducive. But in the evenings, after the meetings were over, that's when the real action would start. And there was one evening in particular that you're alluding to where we started off with a bunch of drinks and and Todd was in rare form. That I won't go through all the machinations that he went through leading up to this, but I think you're talking about when we finally arrived in the room on the fifth floor of this hotel. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, because we had been drinking along the way and that was all good. But at some point in the evening, it's time for the kind of refreshments that really don't play as well in public. And so we retired to one of the rooms and there were like seven of us there and it was mostly programmers. And there was one, you know, director level aspiring VP kind of person. And uh, we were all just getting wasted. We were getting high and uh, having a very good time. And Todd Todd is a very athletic and acrobatic sort of individual. And Todd is very familiar with buildings and things like that. He's very, he was a construction worker himself before he came to Atari. And so he liked to relate to a building in ways most people don't. 
<laughs> so one of the things that he did was he, um, after a couple of joints, he went out on the balcony, you know, we're on the fifth floor and it seems like a nice view and everything. And it's all cool. And he's out on the balcony. And then at one point he jumps up on the railing of the balcony and he starts doing like a tightrope walk on the railing of the balcony. And we're all laughing and, and goofing around because we're trying to keep the door shut, you know, because we don't want too much of the smoke getting out. And, you know, and this is it. We're all in a pretty good state of mind and Todd's acting up. And there is this thought of like, you know, is it really wise to be tightrope walking on a railing five floors above? And uh, and the answer, of course, is no. But we were you know sufficiently lubricated that it just seemed like kind of funny and nobody really thought something bad was going to happen. And then Todd at one point looks down and and he says, you know, it doesn't really look that that bad. And he jumps. He jumps off the rail and we freak out. And we're like, oh my God. Todd has jumped. He left. And we all run. To, we rush the thing. We throw open the door and we run out to the balcony and look down. And what we didn't know was there was a terrace built out of the fourth floor that was like sitting out there with like a little topiary with strawberries and stuff. And it's like, and there's Todd looking up at us and he is laughing. He is hysterical because he sees the terror in our eyes. And the person who I think was most terrified was this potential VP guy. It was the management guy because he's the one who knows at the inquest Right, that they're going to be saying. So, how did you respond? You're the only one who has a position of responsibility here, for God's sake. How did you let this get that out of hand? And he sees his career like disintegrating before his eyes, and so he was like, he was a combination of still destroyed and relieved at the same time to see there's Todd, but Todd's not done, right? Because now Todd starts wandering around on the terrace, and he says, you know, he goes. I think I got to pee. <laughs> he walks up to one of the bushes and prepares to relieve himself. And at that point, the aspiring VP yells out to him. He goes, no, Todd, he goes, you can't pee in those bushes. We might have customers in those bushes. And I think it was one of the funniest things is. that I ever heard at Atari. It was classic. <laughs> You know, but it's interesting. He thinks our customers hang out in bushes waiting to uh, find a video game or something. I don't know where that came from. That was just. But it's also, but it's also like appealing to like crunk logic in that moment, right? Totally. Totally. Here's why you can't do this. I'm going to challenge you with something that you can't possibly like logic your way out of you're going to be arrest yourself in that moment and go customers <laughs> right he can't say to him it's indecent or it's inappropriate and stuff because we were all about inappropriate that that wasn't an argument in our in our beer group right it didn't make sense but the fact that we might have customers in there well that had meaning so, so um yars revenge comes out it's a big hit it's um you know, arguably the first sort of original IP hit on a console, I think is a fair thing to say. Um, and, uh, you know, while you didn't get to put in maybe all of your ambitious uh, Hollywood ideals into this game, uh, the, the next game kind of offers up a lot of that opportunity, right? 
Yeah. So yeah, getting to work on Raiders of the Lost Ark was an amazing next step uh, because there were a number of people who sought me out because they saw Yar's Revenge and thought, that's really cool. We'd like you to do something for us. And there were the uh, psychic controller people who really wanted that because they felt my games were visually generous and that would be good. But the one I was most interested in was Steven Spielberg seemed to be interested in me doing it. Although not exclusively. I don't think he did it because of Yars. What happened was Spielberg made it known that he was he wanted a video game for Raiders of the Lost Ark and Atari got the contract. And so there were interviews. And so some whoever was going to do Raiders had to go interview with Spielberg. And it was about the time that I had just pretty much finished Yars. Yars wasn't released yet because it was going to go through testing hell for another five months. But I still had a next game to start working on. So I got to fly down to... Uh, Warner Studios and meet and have an interview with Spielberg. And that was quite a day in and of itself because, they, you know, I showed up right on time. I had to get up very early, which I'm not a big fan of, to go and and fly to L.A. for an interview at 930. And the first thing they tell me when I arrive is, oh, by the way, we rescheduled your interview to 330. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you just moved I interview that I flew here for? I have plane reservations to go back and you moved it six hours? But uh, and then I thought, oh, well, this is Warner Studios. I got to hang out at Warner Studios all day, which was very cool. And then I actually got to interview with Spielberg and had the interview with him. And that interview was kind of interesting because we I, I brought Yars Revenge and we played it together. So I got to play my game with Spielberg and that was fun. And uh, and then I called him an alien. <laughs> I explained to him my whole theory about how he is an alien himself. And that was fun. And uh, he, he found that very interesting. I think that's what got me uh, the opportunity to do the game, actually, more so than anything else. I think he liked Yars, and he liked the fact that I figured he was an alien. And uh, between those two things, uh, I got the opportunity to do the game. So is that more or less convincing that he is indeed an alien? Because I feel like if, if he was an alien, he wouldn't want to go with you because then his secret's out, you know? You, you might want well, to try but to on the other hand, who's going to listen to Howard? <laughs> You know, I don't think it was, the, he may not Fair have been point. that worried about that. No, I mean, I can tell you my theory if you want to hear it, you know, my whole theory about it. But it, it was simply it's just that he was, he Wait, had done. The, your theory that Steven Spielberg is an alien? Is that, is yes. that what you're offering right now? Yes. Yes. Okay. You want to hear that or you want to save that for the book? This, so I, I uh, let, let's, let's go. Well, would you prefer the listeners right now go? Uh, buy the book for this story, <laughs> or do you want? To... <laughs> There's you plenty like of stories in the book to go around. Story. That's for sure. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, briefly, I, I don't have to go into the whole. I mean, I do the whole theory in the book, but just suffice it to say that you yeah. know, as someone who was promoting a positive image of uh, aliens, I felt he was part of an advanced team of aliens that were preparing the Earth because I really felt in the early '80s we were getting close to meeting aliens. PR team. Yeah. So he did that. Now, E.T. hadn't even I didn't even know about E.T. yet. Right. This is before E.T.'s even announced or any of that stuff. Spielberg is probably just looking at the script at this point. And uh, but he had already done Close Encounters and that was enough for me. And I just said to him, yeah, I said, you know, you guys are doing a great job culturalizing the planet, getting us ready to meet the aliens. You know, and I just want to say, you know, thumbs up. Nice job. <laughs> doing doing a great job. And I held that theory for a long time until. He directed War of the Worlds. And I figured once he did War of the Worlds, I figured that's pretty much it for that theory. It's like, because that one did not really say, hey, aliens, come on, let's get together. 
<laughs> well, he knew someone was onto him, so he had to give some like counter. I'm I'm just trying to think like an alien here. Like if no, he's worried right. about being caught. And it's a good choice, right? I mean, that would be the the appropriate strategy. So far, we haven't caught him yet, so it's it's worked. So Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Atari game. Um, I think fair to say a, a very ambitious game design, given your hardware limitations. Absolutely. But, you know, ambitious was what I was all about with that. You know, with Yard's Revenge, all I wanted to do was make a game that was a game I would like to play and a game that established me as a really credible game maker. That's what I wanted to do with Yars. With Raiders, I wanted to make the biggest game anybody had ever seen on the VCS. I wanted to make a game that felt so big, right? Yars, I think, had really good visual impact. It felt like a bigger experience than it was, but it was still one screen. With Raiders, I wanted it to feel like the biggest game world you've played in and just really have differentiable scenes from, from place to place. And, and, it, and Raiders is a great movie to do a game from because it has a real action through line and there's lots of set pieces that really translate well, the map room stuff and, you know, running around. And then there were some things that didn't translate so well, so I just made stuff up to you know, bridge the gaps. And uh, But I wanted it to be huge. I wanted it to be huge and I wanted to have an epic feel. And... You know, because I wanted every one of my games to be groundbreaking in some way. There needed to be something groundbreaking about each game that I did. And Raiders was a real challenge. And Raiders was the game that took me the longest to do. Raiders was, uh, you know, like 10 months start to finish. What was typical for Atari engineers at the time? Uh, Typical game development time was, you know, six six to eight months. I mean, I did Yars Revenge in seven months. I did Raiders in 10 months. You know, and I had five weeks for ET. You know, that's how it goes. <laughs> okay, there it, there, is. It, there it is. We're clocking it. So uh, we, were, we, we were timing how long it'd take to bring up ET. We were, it was a personal challenge. 45 minutes. <laughs> a new that's record. A new personal record, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually very proud of us. Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> that's great pretty good. Um, you this, said uh, the word ET earlier, but it, it didn't was count the as the movie. So we... we <laughs> secretly messaged each other to be like that one didn't count (laughs) yeah part of our when we were discussing this episode before it's like i was talking it's like you know people almost exclusively talk to howard about et and i think he's an interesting game designer and i think it'd be kind of interesting to like you know at least push et to the back (laughs) and that's fine if that's where you want to keep it i'm I'm okay with that but i for the record i am not embarrassed or ashamed of et no 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 you should no 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 no, no. It's not about it's just, that. It's, it's just about that you the, stories. Yes. But I want to know who won the pool. Um, well, you I lost because you brought it up. <laughs> oh, we didn't have a pool. You did, we didn't have a pool. It's yeah. Fair. We should have. No, we, we were just, we just wanted to see how long we could go. It was, <laughs> it was just a challenge. <laughs> we will get there though. I do want to talk about ET, but, um, uh, yeah. So Raiders, you know, it, it is, I mean, for those who haven't played it, it's, you, you might call it an open world game these days right it's it's basically a a computer adventure game um but you uh rather remarkably um had things like an inventory system and 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 you know the the sort of large persistent world um on an atari cartridge that i mean what was it 4k that one i don't even know uh not a lot of 4k raiders was 8k 
I got to go to 8K with Raiders, 8K. so that helped yeah. enormously. Yeah, eight kilobytes, folks, uh, <laughs> for a living world. Not right. What I like to say is we did games in like four to eight K then. So games today are yeah. way bigger than four to eight gig, right? So if you yeah. think about it, games now are literally, literally a million times bigger than the games that we were making. So the question I always pose is, are they a million times better? They're definitely better, you know? <laughs> But are they a million times better? I don't know. I don't know if the economics of uh, game development has been on an upward curve, a declining curve, or just linear. I know that's a question everybody grapples with every day. <laughs> um, as an aside, um, you mentioned that during production of Raiders, uh, something that you did in the hallways uh, of Atari games was uh, crack a bull whip. <laughs> Um, yeah, I guess trying to get into character, um, what I find, what I, what delighted me about that story. And, and I, you may or may not know this, uh, about 10 years later at Lucasfilm games, uh, on the ranch, uh, they are making, you know, the Indiana Jones three adventure game and, uh, Steve Purcell, uh, the artist there, uh, did the exact same thing. <laughs> he bought a whip. <laughs> He said, I need this to understand oh, how to cool. animate a whip. And and uh, he was known to go outside and crack the whip, uh, you know, well past needing to know how a whip works. <laughs> <laughs> well, once you know how to do it, it's a shame to let it go. <laughs> exactly. So there is some DNA. And uh, uh, if anyone listening ends up working on a new Indiana Jones game, uh, you know, pay it forward. Let's <laughs> <laughs> Learn to use the whip. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's get into ET Yard. Um, so famously, this is a game uh, that was pitched to you as having we've we've established right that that a typical dev cycle on an Atari game six seven months right you went you went as long as ten um, you were told straight up we need a game in five weeks. And uh, you accepted that. I did. You and accepted I was that the only person on the face of the earth who would accept that challenge. And I, you know, I mean, your I, boss straight up turned it down first, right? Like exactly. your boss was just like, nope, that's impossible. Click, hang up the phone. Not just my boss, my <laughs> grand boss, right? It was my boss's boss, who's the head of VCS <laughs> development, who Ray Kazar had called him first and said, hey, we need ET for September 1st. This is July 27th. And uh, he just said, you can't do it. You can't do a game that fast. You just can't do it. And for some reason, after that exchange, Ray Kazar still called me directly in my office. The only time I ever got a call in my office from the CEO of the company. I mean, I'm a little guy. I'm at the bottom of the org chart. And uh, this guy, you know, it's like the, the boss's 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 boss. And uh, so that, that communication doesn't happen very often. But for some reason, it happened here. And he called me up and... And he says, can you do it? We need it for September 1st. I didn't know he'd called my, my boss's boss already who told him no. And I said to him, absolutely, I can do that. I can totally do that. I said, provided we reach the right agreement. <laughs> and, he, and he says, no problem. And this is a Tuesday afternoon. He said, there'll be a Learjet waiting for you Thursday morning at 8 a.m. San Jose Executive Terminal. Be on it. Be ready to come present Spielberg with the design. So this is Tuesday afternoon, verging on Tuesday evening. I have till Thursday morning 
to do a design for the biggest, for the game, for the biggest Hollywood movie out currently. <laughs> it's like, yeah, really? Okay. Well, if you only have five weeks to do the game, you better not take more than 36 hours to design it, I guess. So that was the beginning of it. I actually think I discussed the ET thing in the book. The, uh, ah! <laughs> it was, you got me with that. You genuinely got me. With that. Um, <laughs> I'm embarrassed. Um, so what I something I found really interesting that had never occurred to me. So um, first of all, just for the record, I don't think ET is a bad game. Um, so that, that's not where I'm coming from when I say this. But uh, uh, I do think it. It I, I did always think of it as maybe uh, uh, think of it as being maybe a little overscoped uh, for the development period, and it hadn't occurred to me until you said this in the book that. Uh, your design for ET um, was based on what you felt you could do in five weeks, right? So, like, you know, Spielberg, you know, asks you, right? Can you just kind of do a maze game? Can you do a Pac-Man game? And and your your response is, you know, well, you 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 kind of pump them up and say, no, it needs to be this important big game because it's an important big movie, right? But but secretly in your head, it's like, well, no, I this is the one I can do in five weeks. Absolutely, and- yeah. The reality <laughs> of it is, look, this is all I can deliver with what you're asking. <laughs> this is what we got, and so please say yes. I just didn't want to come off that desperate, but I would have yeah. if he would have <laughs> pursued the Pac-Man thing. But you know, and actually, my initial impulse was was much less kind. <laughs> when he first <laughs> gave me that, as I think you know, I went into in the story. But uh, yeah, it was, you know, I had a strong background in math and computers uh, coming into Atari. But the, the things that really served me at Atari was my background in economics and theater. And people usually find that odd. But it's I think it's true because economics, you know, people think of economics like accounting or finance, but it's not. Economics is the allocation of scarce resources, right? It's the science of allocating scarce resources. And if there was ever a scarce resource, it was the 2600, right? The Atari BCS had so little memory, uh, so little processor speed. It was just it could just barely do what it was doing. And so it was a very scarce resource. And finding clever new ways of reallocating and reworking with that uh, was huge. And so I felt that was more useful in programming. And my theater background really helped me understand the concept that a video game does not take place on a screen. It takes place in the mind of the player. And so I would program stuff for a player impression, not for technological achievement or to meet some kind of standard or whatever. I mean, I had to do that anyway, but that, that was the way I approached programming, and that was very big for both Yars and Raiders. But the truth is, when it came to ET, I did go way back into just my technological training. There was certainly some creativity involved in trying to work it. But, you know, normally the goal is do a good game and see how long it takes to, to create a good game. You keep working on it till it's good. This was a different approach. This is, here's how much time you have to do a game Let's see how good a game you can do in that time. The priority is totally different. So what you have to do is if you design, if you plan a game that usually would take six months to make and try to do that in five weeks, guaranteed fail. No way that works. So what I did was I tried to think I need a game I can actually do, achieve in five weeks, if that's even possible. 
And so that was the way I approached it. And I thought about it for, you know, 18 to 20 hours and figured out what realistically could be done, (laughs) what I might be able to really achieve. And, uh, and it worked. And, you know, one of the great ironies of ET is that basically I came up with a design and what you see on the screen in ET is probably 95 to a hundred percent of my design concept. I delivered what I planned to deliver. And so Ordinarily, you say, hey, how did that project go? You go, hey, I delivered 100% of my design concept. You wouldn't expect people to go, oh, I'm sorry, that's too bad. What a bummer, right? You would think that's a good thing. But <laughs> but the truth is, the thing, you know, in video games, there's a thing called first playable, right? Any video game development, there comes a point where you, the first opportunity you have, like the graphics are just garbage. And there's, you know, you all you have is little sprites or little blocks running around representing the pieces of the game. But it's the first time you can run around, move it, work a controller, move things through, and the rules of the game are implemented. And you can start to experience the play. And that's when a game starts. That's called first playable. And the thing is, most games, first playable should occur, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50% of the way through a schedule. And what I realized was the problem with E.T., is that I'm going to have to release first playable, which means my design has to be perfect. Usually a design is a starting point. And, you know, hopefully when you get a final product, that product is maybe 20, 25% of the original design. And the reason it doesn't match the original design is because it got better, because you made improvements along the way. And ET didn't, that's what I call rumination time. And uh, it just didn't have that on ET. That's, that's what we missed. So, I delivered exactly what I set out to make, but I didn't like Yars Revenge. If I would have done that with Yars Revenge, Yars Revenge would have sucked. Right? It would have been a bad game. Yars Revenge is a classic example of a game that got to first playable. And then through the refinement and the tuning and the, um, the reflection and the rumination, it got to a better place. And E.T. didn't have that luxury. Because it is a luxury. And what strikes me as so interesting about this, uh, just from from our perspective as historians, is, you know, I think people tend to sort of romanticize, like, the initial concepts for games. Um, like, they look, they see a design document or, you know, these cut features or whatever, and they kind of, like, romanticize this alternate history of, like, what could have been, this was the, this was the real idea, this was the true idea of this game. But... Oftentimes those things don't, I mean, sometimes they get cut because of memory limitations or whatever, but oftentimes those things don't get cut because they were good. They get cut because they realized they could do something in a different or better way. And, and ET did not have that luxury. So that's kind of like a very good illustration of why you don't necessarily need to romanticize this. Like that is the exact implementation of your design and, you know, for better or for worse, that is that's what you end up with. And had you had time to make some refinements and stuff on it, then it might've even been a better I game. hope it would have been a better game. Absolutely. And Kelsey, I think that's a really solid point. It makes a lot of sense. And so, and people do romanticize things. And when you look at it in historical context, and of course me being who I am, 
Uh, E.T. also had to be a breakthrough game. I wanted to be groundbreaking, right? So, and E.T. did it. E.T. had context-sensitive power-ups, essentially. I think it's one of the first games where what you can do with a button varies depending on where you are. And uh, it also is a 3D world. I think it's the first game that ever had an actual 3D world. I didn't do that to be, you know, like, oh boy, 3D. I did it because that was actually easier to program in a multi-screen format, at least for me. It was a very straightforward, <laughs> but it still counts. And uh, one of the great historical elements of E.T. is E.T. is an entirely non-violent game, right? If you think about it. And, and the reason that's so ironic is because, you know, it's a non-violent game that ended up killing an industry, apparently. So, you know, so many people blame it for destroying the video game industry. And it's a non-violent game. I mean, geez, what are you going to do? But, uh, but you know, and, and so it did have some groundbreaking elements. But the thing that was really amazing was that, uh, you know, on like April 26 in 2014 at the dig in Alamogordo, E.T. literally became a groundbreaking game by breaking ground and coming up out of the pit. So, you know, it's, uh, I felt like really vindicated at that point. <laughs> so um, the dig you're talking about, it is for those listening who don't know, it is the subject of a documentary called um, Game Over, which uh, I believe is still on Netflix. I haven't looked in a while. Yeah, Atari Game Over. It's on, well, it's not on Netflix anymore, but I think it's on uh, Amazon Prime. And I think you can see it on YouTube as well. Yeah, highly recommended. And um, it, it just, you know, thinking about that movie and this book, it, it just got, kind of got me wondering, like, did you feel once your time at Atari had ended that, you know, in a, in a way that in a way like your work wasn't done yet you know what i mean like did, did you feel that like you hadn't quite come to peace with your time there and 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 is that kind of why you've uh revisited the past uh frank i think that's a really that's a really important point because it wasn't it wasn't that i was i don't know if it's that i wasn't done with atari or if atari wasn't done with me you know but uh, there was Atari was an amazingly meaningful thing to happen to me in my life and to lose it at that time so abruptly and so unceremoniously and to have all the beauty uh, that I had experienced there decay around me. I know I go into that quite extensively in the book. It was it was one of the three great depressions of my life because I've had some real depressions before and uh, which have contributed tremendously to me becoming a therapist. <laughs> so. It's uh, it was really hard. It was a really hard thing to see go away because I had spent a lot of my life searching for something where I would just feel comfortable and feel okay. And I found it and I truly immersed myself in it and indulged myself in it uh, as long as I could. And then it melted, right? You know, they literally rained on my parade and it disappeared. And there wasn't another, there couldn't be another Atari, right? There just couldn't be another Atari, not at all, certainly then. And uh, so it was, you know, is it better to have loved and lost or never to have loved at all? It was a really hard place for me to be. And it took uh, a long time and a lot of work to come to grips with that. And I did the whole Once Upon Atari documentary series to attempt to deal with that. And I think writing this book on some levels is a final step. And I do feel 
I feel really good having finished this, but it took a long time to do because it wasn't that it, you know, the thing about writing a book or writing a video game or doing any creative production is when you get to the final product, like you take a book, when you get to the end of a book, if you were to think, so how long does it take to write the book? Well, if I had the book sitting in front of me and I just had to type it in, how long would that take? Because that's the shortest amount of time it could take to write the book. And any time you, you take beyond that, well, some people would say, well, that's just wasted time. But other people would say, there's your tuning and rumination time and the development time, because a creative product isn't just the manufacturer, right? The, cre the creative product is, this is the product of the journey of what you learn and where you go along the way. And this book really challenged me to show up and, and reveal and share things not just the stories that I have told for years to people here and there and things like that, but to really uh, confront myself and be honest with myself about what, what the context of these things were. Because there were some fabulous things that went on and there were some really ugly things that went on. And there were some wonderful things I learned about myself and there was some pretty scary stuff that I had to confront uh, in myself at times. And there were amazing elations and tremendous joyful moments and there were panic attacks, you know, throughout my life here and there. And a lot of them revolve around the fact that at a relatively early point in my life, I maxed out in terms of my professional and creative experience. I was in the perfect place at the perfect time. And I was a good person to be there and was able to take advantage of it. And it gave me a vision. It gave me a window into a world that I so wanted and so needed. And then when that got taken away, uh, my life became a search to refine that, to get back to that. And it took me uh, 25 to 30 years to get there. And I got there because I never gave up. But it's a hard, in some ways, it's a very hard thing to really have been at the apex of where you feel you could be in your life and then know you can't be there anymore and have no idea how to recreate it. And so now I have to go back to zero and, uh, and, and recreate it in some new way. And for some people, it'd be like, oh, I can't, I had it and I lost it. That's the most horrible thing. And how can I go on? For me, because I am an optimist, I'm fundamentally a happy, optimistic guy, even though had some rough moments here and there, but basically I'm pretty optimistic. And the way I took the whole experience was, you know, if it happened once, it could happen again. I learned some of the key characteristics of what I need in something that's really gratifying. And uh, I just felt good about the fact that all these things had happened. So no matter how much you take away from me in experience and opportunity and money, all of these things disappeared and got removed from, from my life. But you can't take my happiness, you can't take my, opp my opportunity and my spirit unless I relinquish them. And I refuse to do that. So that's me. That's where I come from. And so, and ultimately I did wind up in therapy. That was, uh, I mean, practicing therapy. I also went in therapy for a while, but I decided I wanted to be a therapist because that's something I always knew I wanted to do. And it's really... It's the thing about Atari was it really, you know, that right left brain thing, that analytical and the uh, the tech, the technologist and the creative person, the artist, the technologist and the artist mixture in me is very important to me. And no place that I had ever worked uh, really gave me gratification on both those levels 
until I became a psychotherapist. Doing therapy with people really challenges me on both a technical level and a creative artistic level. And I try to do it at, at the highest level I can. And it's uh, super deeply meaningful for me. And it's super rewarding too. And in some ways, you know, video games historically have come full circle. And what I mean by that is originally what we were doing was we were making single screen games, uh, fun entertainment, simple entertainment experiences. It was the how high is up thing. You don't win a game. You know, I started creating games you could win. But, you know, basically most action games, you just play them. You just keep playing. And the joy is just in playing and trying to do better each time. And then console games got bigger and bigger and more elaborate, and it got way beyond the scope of where one person could do it. It just couldn't happen. You're not going to have an individual make a PS5 game. It's just not going to happen. But as console development got big and huge and monolithic, then the handheld device revolution comes along and it circles back. And now you do have the big monolithic development, but now once again, individuals or very small groups of people can sit down and create an app and make a fresh game and explore a new concept because console games are too much investment and too big a risk to try and do too much new stuff. People just don't do it. You get narrow casting. So, but innovation has returned in the sense of, now you have an opportunity for individuals with fresh concepts to be able to realize them and put them out in the world. And if it works and takes off, you can then replicate that in bigger events and environments because people have confidence in the gameplay. But for a while, there was no avenue. We, the innovation aspect of game development had really taken a hit and it was revitalized. So that's why it came full circle. We got back to a place where you can have an individual doing a fresh concept. And that's what was, was exciting about Atari. And in a similar way, uh, my going into psychotherapy and focusing particularly on high-tech people and gamers and things like that, uh, I've come full circle because the way I look at it is I used to just entertain nerds and now I genuinely work to make their lives better. And it, it's just tremendously rewarding. I feel very good about it. So there was, there was something I wanted to ask you about uh, your therapy uh, practice that had, I think, nothing to do with it in the book. But to me, I, I saw maybe a through link there, um, which is that you do a lot of explaining about how game styles and, and preferences kind of communicate who people are, both from a player perspective and a game designer perspective. Is that something you bring into the therapy practice too? Like, is, are there ways you can get a sense for someone and help them through just the way they interact with games? Because I thought that was a really interesting concept. Like if you know who someone is through their video game preferences, you know, can that help them? Absolutely. This, this goes to a central concept I believe in, which I just call everybody signs their work. And what I mean by that is everything anybody does on any level speaks about them in a very direct and accurate way. The challenge is to be able to read it. And so, you know, different games have different styles, right? There's different types of games. And, you know, there's driving games, there's shooters, there's first-person shooters, there's uh, ground acquisition stuff, there's adventure, there's, there's, there's platformers, there's a lot of different styles of games and people have different uh, preferences. And 
Another game I play with clients. So sometimes I ask people, you know, what are your favorite games? What are the games you like to play? And that helps me zero in on who they are as a personality. Same thing with movies. You can, I, if you tell me your top five movies that you, that you really, your favorite all time five movies, uh, that will tell me a lot about who you are. You can do it with books. You can do it with anything. And the reason is because we do express ourselves through our preferences. So whether you're a game maker, what kind of games do you make? Or you're a game player, what kind of games do you play? You know, do you play, uh, you know, there's games like Pac-Man that are pattern games. Okay. So a game like Pac-Man and a game like Robotron could seem similar in some ways because, you know, you have a big messy screen, you got to clean it up you know? <laughs> and, and you get through it and there you go. And we'll get into anal retentive games maybe another time. <laughs> but uh, if you think about it, there's uh, some action games are pattern games, right? Which is you learn the optimal way to go through it. And if you execute that plan, that's the way you win the game. That's how you do well in the game. Whereas a game like Robotron is a classic, you know, hunt and shoot and react. It's shoot from the hip. Those, all the initial robots are going to be randomly distributed. They're just going to start moving. And you've got to start from where you are and work your way out. And you have to dynamically respond in the moment. So do you prefer reading a script? Do you prefer having a known path and the challenge is to be able to execute it accurately, given you know what to do? Or are you the kind of person who prefers to re read and respond, react in the moment? I want to be spontaneous. I want to live. I don't need a plan. I just need a weapon and three feet. And I will work my way out. And those are different types of people, right? You know, there's, you know, like there's two kinds of people in the world. There's people who split the world into two kinds of people and people who don't, right? So, and I'm definitely a grouper and a splitter at times, right? Because I, I, live in a world where I have to figure out where people are at and then I have to figure out ways of helping them reintegrate in some cases or at least address the issues that they're having. And using people's preferences, particularly about entertainment, I think is so telling. It's such great information. If you ask a person to describe themselves, they might tell you about the person they would like you to believe they are. If you ask a person what do they like, they're much more inclined to be truthful about what they like than they are to think about, I'm going to tell you what I think you should think I should like, because that's a little more complicated. But in telling me what you like, you are telling me who you are. If I'm smart enough to be able to read it, right? If I'm perceptive enough to know how to take those signals and translate them into a, a meaningful picture of who you are, and then this is going to help me understand you better. And that's going to enable me to help you understand yourself better. And, you know, and, and in therapy, that's the therapy isn't like I work on you and fix you. That's not what therapy is about, at least not as far as I'm concerned. Therapy is about I help you understand you better and you fix you. It's just you can't necessarily fix you as easily if you don't have a super clear picture of who you are. So it's like, what's my specialty? What's a thing that I can do? One thing that I've always been able to do is listen to people and say back to them what they're saying in a way that maybe they haven't been able to say it as well. That's the feedback I hear from a lot of people. I say, oh, so you're saying blah, blah, blah. And they'll go, yes, yes, that's exact. I could never have said it like that, but that's what I mean. So I, for some reason, I have some ability in that direction. And what it does, it helps people get a hold of who they are. And if you know, if you know what you are, if you know what you have and you know where you are, it's easier to get where you want to go.
right? Because if I don't know where I am, I don't know how to navigate from where I am to where I need to go. And if I don't know what I've got, I don't know what the best tool to use is for my next step. So it's just answering those questions, helping people see accurately uh, who they are and what they've got. And that's what I like to do. And it's, it's amazing work to do for me. Well, um, Howard, uh, thank you very much for joining us here on the Video Game History Hour. Um, where can people find the book, uh, find you online, maybe even book an appointment? Well, you can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Tolino. It's, the book is widely available both in ebook and a, uh, a paperback. And I'm going to be offering some, uh, the first place I'm announcing it is I'm going to be offering some autographed copies of the, uh, of the paperback. So uh, stand by for that. Uh, you want to reach me, uh, onceuponatari.com will show you all things Once Upon Atari, the book, the DVD, and all of that. If you want to talk to me in a counseling sense, you know, I'm a licensed psychotherapist in the state of California. I also do coaching. Uh, you can reach me at hswarshaw.com, and uh, you'll find out about my therapy practice and all the work that I do there. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at hswarshaw. And... Uh, I'm not that hard to find online. I'm also on Facebook <laughs> in multiple confusing <laughs> configurations there. So that's always good. And thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was an honor, Howard. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, this was awesome. I genuinely enjoyed talking with both of you. Frank and Kelsey, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour, brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.